0: Hi there, this is Dan Morrison from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. The Annex is back for a new season after an extended break. We're so happy to present a series of episodes we've recorded with sociologists from across the United States on a wide variety of topics. Looking forward to having you along with us. Today I talk with Michelle Smirnova, Associate Professor of Sociology and affiliate faculty member of Race, Ethnic, and Gender Studies and the Center for Digital and Public Humanities at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Michelle is author of The Prescription to Prison Pipeline, The Medicalization and Criminalization of Pain, published in 2023 by Duke University Press. A sociologist of medicine, science, technology, humor, social movements, and social inequality, Michelle is engaged in organizing in Kansas City and is currently writing a book about that. And she's also writing a second book about how citizen scientists engage gatekeepers. Today on the Annex, Pain, Criminalization, and the Unequal Administration of Justice. Our conversation was recorded on November 14th, 2023. Michelle, so good to have you on the Annex. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm very excited.
0: Well, maybe people know that I went to the University of Missouri-Columbia. I got three degrees from there. So always good to see someone what, what? else from the University of Missouri system. Some good times. Uh, I was on the Columbia campus, of course. But let's jump in. We can't talk about all the good uh, good food in Columbia and other <laughs> other awesome things. So speaking of things we can't cover, we can't cover your full text, but your book provides us with a unique vantage point on issues from the war on drugs to the opioid epidemic. And with the prescription-to-prison pipeline, you document how existing structural inequalities around race, gender, and class make some groups more likely to experience pain, physical, psychic, or both. And you also show quite vividly the consequences of treating pain via pharmaceuticals, often first prescribed by a doctor and later used non-medically without a doctor's prescription. Some of us may know that pain has been described as the fifth vital sign, so to get us started, how did pain come to be understood as a medical problem in itself? I mean, Michelle, I'm, you know, I'm now in my middle age and I got to say the back is a little, you know, got a little tweak here and there. So how did this become a fifth vital sign?
1: Absolutely. And exactly from the point the your vantage point is where it became that People are living longer than ever before. Um, we talk, even the concept of middle age is the same time that people historically were dying um, during when those aches and pains set in. So chronic pain um, is increasingly a defining feature of life because people are living longer um, and in greater health. And um, we know less about, or we, we know more about um, many ailments, but there are many ailments where the primary um, uh, feature of that ailment is pain itself. Um, and so for all of these reasons um, in the mid nineties, um, healthcare providers uh, included this, uh, the pain scale as a fifth vital sign um, alongside blood pressure and heart rate, respiratory rate, temperature, um, sort of as these biometric markers of health. Um, and so it was to legitimize pain as this really important um, uh, experience to pay attention to and to treat. Um, but Though this um, came with good intentions for doctors to be able to address the needs of pain and to prescribe um, uh, medication to treat pain in and of itself, um, we know as research has increasingly and more robustly um, revealed not all pain is treated equally. Um, we know that um, people of color, most notably Black people and women, are less likely to have their pain treated seriously um, and to believe be believed. Um, and so they're less likely to receive treatment for um, that sort of pain. Um, and then the other issue of it, which is sort of at the heart of the book, is that um treating pain as a symptom or as a biomarker shifts our focus onto the body as opposed to the structural conditions that often produce that pain um, and the physical embodiment of that pain. And Keith waylu writes in Pain, a, um, uh, a political history about how pain is political, um, about whose pain is recognized um, and who is not, and um, what are the treatments we um we offer, and so thinking about the source of pain being um, socio-political, um, investing in the the sources of those pains, um, such as income and wealth inequality, housing, child care, mental health support, all of these structural sources and structural solutions get erased when we talk about pain exclusively as an embodied biomedical experience.
0: What you're calling to mind for me is an example I use in my medical sociology classes about how, you know, as sociologists, we're interested in upstream causes, so things yes. like the fundamental causes of of health and illness. It's not about how a particular person got this disease or who exactly gets cancer, you know, but the social sources of disease and discomfort and and illness um, that transcend, um, you know, pinpointing why. This person or that person got, you know, this or that that ailment. Um, Absolutely. You know, of course, it's just the case that we have a, a a society organized around race and gender and class lines, such that people are in different, you know, economic brackets and they're subject to different um, risks of getting injuries. Right. So, you know, most of us uh, who are professors. You know, we have these offices. At least, you know, tenure track and tenure people have offices, and you know, but there's a whole whole bunch of people who do physical plant stuff, and they do, um, you know, they do janitorial services, and they do all kinds of things that are physically taxing. Um, and they also tend to get paid way less than some of us. Um, anyway, so your your point about how not that how different groups are differentially exposed to risks of injuries and other um. Uh, ailments that lead to pain is is really important.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, and that is a key feature of the book, as you've described about who is exposed to that pain in the first place, um, as a product of their, their work and their life. um, And then who receives healthcare treatment for um, that pain. So the healthcare um, and medical professionals play a role here, but it's um, exactly these upstream causes of pain, um, uh, as opposed to treating it as a biomedical um, disease or issue without looking at those structural causes.
0: Well, I think this this really segues to the my next question, which is about your use of concepts from the medical sociology literature. So you know, like medicalization and how pain understood as a medical problem was then adopted by the criminal legal system. And you discuss this in terms of what you call therapeutic jurisprudence. So could you define that term and help us understand what it means in your study?
1: Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And I think this is something that um, I'll start from an entry point of sociologists and theorists, um, given that that's um, a lot of our audience. But um, that's sort of this therapeutic turn, um, in the carceral system. So this treatment of we're, we're going to take a more humane approach to, um, carceral politics, um, that focuses on helping, um, I'm using sort of this, um, quotation around, uh, helping prisoners, reform prisoners, um, instead of this, this punitive model. And it sounds great, um, in, in the pitch and how it's sold, um, uh, but we see how it reflects very much what Foucault writes about in Discipline and Punish, um, about this shift from the the body, from corporal punishment, um, sort of um, isolation, but also physical torture and um, what we think of as inhumane or barbaric forms of um, imprisonment and punishment, um, to this control of the mind and the soul, so that. It's pitched in this positive, um, humane way of we're trying to help people, but it's sort of this civilizing process of um, that it's trying to um, locating the offending um, nature of a person in their mind um, and that we need to get inside their mind uh, through psychologists and psychiatrists and psychotropic drugs and treating them to be a model citizen, um, or a good citizen. Um, and this is particularly, um, uh, it also sort of makes this assumption that it it needs to be this ongoing process instead of, um, this person can, uh, in the previous religious, language of they can repent for their sins and be cleared or they serve their time and they're, they're now, um, free. This is this ongoing life project of They always need to be working on, um, remaking themselves, um, particularly in, in terms of the issue of addiction and substance use. Um, when we treat this as this, um, in the language of medicine, this chronic relapsing brain disorder, it's located inside um, people and it's, it's something that's permanent. It can never be undone and it requires this constant work um, and this constant work that needs to be enacted by the prison system itself through rehabilitation centers, um, through prisons themselves, through AA meetings. Um, And so it, it brands people permanently. Once you're an addict, you're always an addict. Um, And so it's, it's bringing in this medicalizing process of, We say things that were previously not medical are now they need to be treated by doctors and by medicine and by healthcare. That it's kind of bringing the prison system into that too, um, about how um, it is required to remake people in particular ways to be good, upstanding citizens.
0: I think this is so fascinating because on the one hand, you know, when we have a medicine or when we have a criminal legal system that says you've done a bad thing. To now you are a person with a legitimate medical disorder, but the flip side of that is you're never going to be rid of that medical disorder. If it is a, you know, it's a a permanent biological attribute of oneself um, that requires constant treatment and, and monitoring and surveillance versus, you know, you did a bad thing or maybe you, you had a broken arm, we fix the broken arm. You no longer have a broken arm. We don't need to X ray your arm every month or every you know yes. a year or whatever. Um, but somehow, when it's a when the problem, so to speak, is um, mental or brain based, you know the understanding is that's a a permanent you know lifelong you know condition. Super interesting.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it speaks to exactly what you teach about and know about this the medicalization of issues. Um, there, it's a double-edged sword that for some people, it it legitimizes their experience that there is this major institution and there's treatment that's saying this is real um, because it's real in the eyes of this major institution. Uh, and so the way that substance use and addiction has been medicalized, people can see, well, it's, it's real. It's something it's not because I'm immoral or I'm prone to bad, uh, that I'm lazy or don't have um, uh, control of my impulses. Um, that it's it's a biological reality, but exactly as you described, it becomes this permanent um, diagnosis. Um, there's no way to undo it. And then it also, it, it gets to this genetic essentialism of there are people who um, are born without this flaw in their DNA or genetic um, component. And I had a lot of respondents who talked about that and um, told the story of, well, I'm I'm an addict because my mom was an addict or my dad or my sibling um, and they would talk about their 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 family members gambling addictions or their family member some did something else. And so we see how this concept of addiction more broadly then gets biologized and sort of connects all of these well, they engaged in this behavior that now we have defined, either because of the criminal justice system has defined it in that way, um, or somebody else's, this is a medical problem. So yeah, I think it's to getting at the heart of what you're saying, that like it can be presented as more humanistic. It's that this is this is a medical issue that we're treating it as such and focusing on treatment as opposed to punishment. But that treatment often has very punitive um, uh, characteristics.
0: I was gonna say the treatment looks a lot like uh, punishment in many respects, uh, an ongoing, you know, punishment, surveillance, and, and so on. Exactly. Okay, so first, pain is defined as a medical problem, and doctors often write prescriptions with the goal of managing that pain. Sometimes the prescription runs out, but the pain continues. So can you walk us through one of the stories your interview subjects told about how they came to be prescribed one or more medications for pain? And what happened when they could no longer get that prescription refilled?
1: Absolutely. Uh, so, of course, there are many. Um, the book is filled with stories of people who received uh, medication for an ailment and then uh, were unable to access or also the inverse, that they didn't have access to healthcare and they had this pain and they started to treat themselves. Um, and so the book is very much about this, this uneven access to health care um, and then um, uneven access to surveillance and policing. So who's more likely to be over-policed? Um, but then this uneven access to healthcare is is very similar to the story we have with policing. Um, what are communities that both have the absence um, of police when they want them and then the overpresence uh, when they don't want them. Um, and so we see a similar um, uh, process at play here. Um, so one story that comes to mind um, is of Sean, who is a black man who was raised in Missouri um, in a, a very white community. Um, and he stands out as sort of an exemplar of this process. Um, he grew up in a stable home, two uh, parents, two, um, uh, gainfully employed, um, went to a good school, he played football, um, was really popular in school. Um, and um, but as a sort of a result of um playing football, he sustained a lot of injuries. Um so football is a very violent sport. Um, and um, a lot of times players don't speak up about the the pain they experience because they won't be encouraged to play as much, that they'll be benched. And um, so there is an element of um, racialized masculinity here, uh, but also a sport and um, these different things that um, cause people to not speak out about their pain. Um, But he did end up receiving some treatment through the the team doctor. He ended up receiving pain medication for some um, chronic um, pain condition he developed Um, and he was able to manage, he was able to continue to play, played in college. Um, but then he started to, um, um, he was cut off, um, from his, um, pain medication. I think, um, I think he ended up having to stop playing. Um, and so he didn't have access to the same doctors and he went to other doctors asking for treatment and, he wasn't believed, and um this is really is reflected in quantitative data um, of black patients are more likely to have their pain doubted, less likely to receive quality health care. They're also more likely to be surveyed by doctors, searched by police officers, arrested, sentenced, all of these things. um and that was the story for Sean. um so he, By not receiving medications, he started smoking weed uh, more frequently. This is a time when marijuana was not legal um, medically or recreationally in the state um, of Missouri, um, although it is um, uh, increasingly across the country today. Um, And he was uh, he went into a doctor to try and get um, some pain treatment and he was drug tested without knowing it. Um, And he was put on probation. Um, He eventually was searched um, by a police officer in another um, situation, found with pain pills that were his, but given his record, he ended up not being able to defend himself, ends up in prison. Um, And so I think his story really highlights all of these inequities of um times when people are encouraged to engage in activity that's going to expose them to violence and pain um and in what conditions someone is going to receive treatment and be believed and in what situations they're not um and then who's kind of the similar story of policing more broadly. Um, what are the communities and the populations and the individuals who are more likely to be surveyed and policed um, and prone to this prescription to prison pipeline? Um, and instead of addressing that physical pain, but also exactly as you identified all these upstream causes of focusing on housing, food, education, jobs, healthcare, like um, that the the focus is all on this punitive um, element um, and so, yeah, his story kind of stands out as there is many different stories who tell similar stories. But he his story really brings a lot of this stuff together.
0: I think I want to follow up on one of those pieces you you said the, towards the end there about, you know, folks like Sean, who. Because of their status as as black men, as a black man and like often you know, members of of communities of color are over policed, you know, they're they're stopped uh, disproportionately. Right. I was thinking about the other side. Right. Because in your book, you you do talk about how folks who are um, who are white or affluent may have very long running prescriptions for pain medication. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not categorized as a problem when certain Folks have these like long running relationships to pain medication, but it is often seen as a problem when folks are, uh, have minority status in some, in some way.
1: Yes, no, absolutely. And so I think, um, a lot of the respondents, um, in my research were white. Um, uh, there was half, uh, half were in a women's, um, facility and half were in a men's facility. But, um, there were many, um, white uh, people who talked about how they were believed, how they were, um, or they were, they were often prescribed, um, drugs when they weren't asking for them. Um, this was one of the most surprising findings. Um, how many, um, people who were giving birth um, at the time of giving birth, um, they were prescribed uh, prescriptions for the first time. And so this is again, um, addressing this uneven access to healthcare that um, for a lot of these people, the first time they were accessing healthcare in their adult lives was when they were giving birth. Um, And so this is their access point. And again, talking about upstream causes of pain um, that a lot of um, these uh, mothers were um, in physical pain and emotional and psychological pain, dealing with postpartum anxiety and depression, um, and how that was managed with a prescription pad, um, that they were dealing with inability to pay bills, uh, un- unable to access housing um, and child care, affordable child care, any child care. Um, and that in a system where we don't have the resources to support people in these ways that um, it's again; these are well intentioned healthcare providers that are trying to help, um, but the only way they they're able to in this capacity, recognizing insurance doesn't cover talk therapy and um, these things, is with a prescription pad. Um, and so there were many of these stories where people started using, and they described that they developed these unhealthy relationships with um, prescription drugs, um, but were unable to stop um, and how it was um, supported. Um, And so I think the reason Sean's story stands out is because the way he used these substances was not unlike the way a doctor would prescribe it. Um, But he was penalized for doing it in a way because he did not have a doctor's permission because of his over surveillance. But exactly as you have identified, this is a very complex story. And the the story is not saying that drugs are bad um, or that drugs are good. It's, That this is complicated and um, that people need to be believed and their pain needs to be treated through structural support, um, but also medical support. um, When, again, again, talking about medicalization and this double-edged sword, we see 100% the same thing going on here.
0: It's a great book for recognizing the many not only layers of this topic, but how those layers um, you know, interact uh, through, through the stories of your respondents. So I want to talk more about the respondents. So the book is the product of 80 interviews and an original survey with about 500 respondents. The interviews were conducted with 40 men and 40 women, all of whom were incarcerated when you spoke with them. And as you note in your appendix, incarcerated people are considered a vulnerable population. So for those of us who are interested in interviews and and methods and how this stuff works, can you say something about how you were able to access this group and any lessons you learned about interviewing within prisons, you know, what should others considering studying incarcerated populations be thinking about?
1: Absolutely. It's a great Great question. And it's something I really grappled with as you identified in the appendix. I write quite a bit about this because um, incarcerated people are a vulnerable population for a good reason. As we know, Um, incarcerated people are exploited in all sorts of ways, um, prison labor and um, being denied the right to vote and not having their claims treated, not being able to have voice, dissent and engage in political conversations and So I think it's all of that tension at play, which is part of what drew me to um, this research in this way, but also the tensions I had in engaging in this research, Um, because this research is um, it, it sort of centers this piece of trying to give voice to people who are Suppressed. Um, they're they're not able to speak about their um, their experiences um, and about injustices they're experiencing, um, and so it's hard to undo or address those institutions that are causing harm um, when the people who are experiencing that harm don't have the ability to speak out about that. Um, but also recognizing that coming into this um, capacity, even though. We were very clear that we are not affiliated with the the, the, the correctional centers, um, that their participation doesn't impact um, their um, uh, request for parole, good behavior, um, that they don't have to disclose anything they don't want to, that they um, can receive compensation even if they don't respond to things Um it's still, I'm being ushered in by, um, uh, uh, people who work from the institution. And so, um, there's good reason for them to not believe me. Um, and, um, so trust was a very challenging thing. And part of the challenge of this is we, we took so many precautions to protecting, um, the identities of, um, our respondents. Um, and, um, in doing so we had to be in and out very quickly. So we, um, as you said, we, um, sent out surveys, sent out 500 surveys to people to respond. And if they responded, they received a $5, um, uh, $5 payment to their account. Um, so it was a double-sided, um, pretty short survey about substance use more broadly. And, um, we that we use that as an instrument to identify people who had used prescription drugs um, uh, e- extensively in a non-medical setting to um, ask them for the interviews. And so the interviews um, people could be t- paid $20. And we had a collection box um, in each of the centers um, where they could put their confidential um, um survey. And we, we went in and collected those, and we immediately input them, and then conducted our interviews over the next two days. And we did this very quickly because, for the point, the the intention to protect identities. So, um, we um, we used a waiver of documentation of consent um, as opposed to um, a traditional consent form, which uh, allows participants not to sign their name. Um, We also received a certificate of confidentiality for um, MEDA, which protected our data in those few days um, that if a police officer came or some sort of law enforcement came to subpoena our information, they couldn't. so we we did this all very quickly. Um, we then we had the audio recordings, which we had transcribed within days um, after the interviews, and then immediately destroyed the um, the recordings um, and any sort of tracing of individuals to their transcripts. Even I couldn't do that um, within. I think a week of us um, conducting the um, interviews and all of this was in part because we really wanted to, we, we recognized how these people who participated, they entrusted us with their stories um, and with these perspectives and how much trust that took. Um, But also that we didn't want this to result in any harm for them. Um, And so it was really important for us to take those precautions. Um, But I always, when people ask me about this book, I talk about how important it was to me to be able to to really um, these people who shared these precious stories to do something um, um, with those stories um, that is true to what they I I guess I got the sense is what they they wanted.
0: It's incredible the speed with which you did this, which just makes me think about all the planning that had to take place to get this timeline into order because if you're going to collect data on a monday and have it transcribed by a friday wow i mean that's incredible
1: yes yeah and so i think um there was a lot of pre-planning that went in and there was a lot we went in even before we administered the surveys. We went to present ourselves to explain, have a face to who we were and explain what we were doing. Um, But yes, it was like a very tight run ship um, in both cases. But yeah, so when people ask me about the book um, and I say that I, I I wanted to put something out there, but how I felt as though the data was not what I wanted it to be, and part of that was because of how quickly we did it. Um, thinking of more traditionally ethnographic work or um, work where you can do follow up interview, follow up um, uh, interviews, or um, you sort of have time to process the preliminary interviews before you then can um, sort of modify your guide. We took all those precautions, and as a result. I wasn't able to sort of flesh that out in the same way, be able to ask people all of those follow-up questions I would have wanted to. Um, and so there's sort of the, the, the tension there of, um, really protecting, um, people at all costs. Um, but as a result, not being able to tell as fully their stories as I would have liked to.
0: Okay. Gosh, that's really interesting. I, I, uh, I hadn't thought a lot about how, how your format of this and and the planning has that potential um you know drawback like all research designs do like you're always you're always deciding like what the trade offs are going to be because no one has unlimited time and unlimited money and of course you're doing this work in the midst of uh you know your actual job that you show up to most days right and <laughs> you know, and, teaching uh-huh. and you know all kinds of other other things in in your life so um you know a great testament to to planning but also to thinking about thinking through the consequences of like all of those choices that that you make and fortunately we have careers that last you know ideally decades and decades so that we can we can do follow-ups and 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 more studies all right well underlying your empirical case is the question of power and control in society and so i kept thinking about recent work in criminology that describes how incarcerated People are not counted in unemployment statistics. And of course, uh many in many places, people with felony convictions, as you've mentioned, are not allowed to vote or receive help from the federal government to pay for education and training programs after they're released or even during their incarceration. I mean, I think policy just changed that allowed people who are incarcerated in some instances to get Pell grants, which are which is an amazing program, often doesn't cover much of or all of the costs certainly of higher education. So uh, let's see, I lost my train of thought on my own question because I was so excited. All right. Uh, (laughs) Also discriminated against in employment and and more. So how do you see the prescription to prison pipeline playing into uh, all of that complex that we just discussed?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, no, great question. And um, sort of that's sort of the the setup for a lot of this or the impetus for this research is that um, a lot of nationally representative surveys don't include incarcerated populations. So the same way um, that they're not, um, uh, don't have access to vote, um, that their, their experiences are erased from our data, from our quantitative data. Um, and it's challenging to have access to this qualitative um, data. And so without their stories and survey data, we have this incomplete picture of what um, is going on. And so that, as I said, is part of the reason it was so important um, to center their voices despite the ethical um, and legal challenges. And so it was really important that people felt comfortable participating of their own volition. But um, as I mentioned earlier, people were paid $5 for the surveys and $20 for the interviews. And there was actually quite a bit of pushback here. Um, and I, I experienced pushback when I worked um, once upon a time for the Census Bureau. And we had a similar um, uh, study where we were um, engaged in some sort of research. We needed to do focus groups with um, unhoused populations and housed populations. And um, they were challenging that we were um, paying them the same amount of money. The um, say, the focus group participants who were housed and unhoused saying, "Well, it's a coercive amount um, for someone who's unhoused, who don't doesn't have, who's unemployed and doesn't have um, this money." And the same thing here that twenty dollars is a large sum of money for an incarcerated person, um, given that people are paid pennies um, uh, while incarcerated for doing labor. And instead of addressing that exploitation system um, of not um, paying people for their labor outside of prisons and inside of prisons, um, just more broadly, um, but challenging this research saying, well, um, uh, you shouldn't be paying someone this much for this story. And um, $20 is comparable to what other interviewees get pay- were getting paid at the time, but is also on the much lower end. Um, and so even this, the fact that it was raised um, as this issue... But to the point of coercion, it's true. As we talked about, we come in as these um, dressed in formal attire from outside of the correctional facility. And so there's this coercive element to it. And so we tried to have these conversations with um, uh, these individuals beforehand to make it clear that participation was voluntary, that they didn't have to respond to everything um, and still receive the payment and – but – the payment i think is this challenge of um equity and um coercion and again this this thing that um i still grapple with um today and but also recognizing the risk that people took in telling their stories um and uh, there were so many people who at the end of the interview talked about how cathartic it was and how they really appreciated having the space and they really hoped they could speak to other people who hadn't lived through what they were living through or to talk to a younger version of themselves. And so that was why it was so important for me to publish this um, in this capacity to tell um the their stories. But the 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 element of coercion, I think is it's particularly acute in this situation with incarcerated populations. But Honestly, is something I wrestle with in qualitative research more broadly um, about how are we exploiting people for their stories um, to to tell these larger um, narratives and research, um, and how are we giving back um, to communities that we are we're taking from um, that even if they talk about this is this was a really beneficial experience that um, it needs to be um, it needs to be a reciprocal relationship.
0: I mean, this is this is off our script, Michelle, but it makes it strikes me that maybe there's a connection between this topic about you know engaging with our research subjects and you know doing doing better, having a less exploitative relationship with them. And maybe some of the work that you're doing now with tenant organizers and tenant organizing is there. Can you draw a connection there for
1: us? No, absolutely. That is a really great connection you've made. Um, and it's true. They're, they're, these two projects contrast quite a bit in that um, I've been engaged in this um, ethnographic research for the past four years with this local um, grassroots um, tenant organization, Casey Tenants. And um, it's been a really impactful and powerful experience um, for me as a researcher um, but also as a person. Um, It's really pushed me to grow and to learn about myself. Um, They're really big on people developing their self-interest for the work and Um, trying to understand what motivates you to do this, not on behalf of other people, but for your own self-interest. And I think that's something that we should all take inventory of as as scholars. Um, And also, as as you mentioned, that um, as I'm engaged with them, I have access to um, these stories um, and to more information, the ability to conduct follow-up interviews and all of this, um, which is beautiful and great. But it also um, develops, it requires quite a bit of trust. Um, and trust is really central to this process. And so um, I, I work on building that trust at the individual level, um, the relationships I have um, with members, um, but also at the collective level. So as an example, um, I've presented my work to the base um, to have them vote on um, the work that um, should we continue with this research and what capacity. Um, and so I have individuals who agree to be interviewed and um, uh, respond in the way that they do, but um, that this trust needs to be developed and maintained at an individual level, but as well as at a collective level. And trust isn't something that just you have it or you don't. It, it, um, it's something that needs to be developed and then maintained over time. So it's this iterative process of um, uh, maintaining that trust. Um, And part of that is showing up um, in the ways that I can um, to support um, the organization, to support the people. Um, I do that through participation in direct actions and council hearings um, and meetings um, when I can. Um, but also financially the all the proceeds from um, the research uh, go to the organization or the mutual aid fund um, i 've also done some other related research that um, had funding that similarly has gone um, to the the impacted people um, as it should and so there's um, this this element of uh, I have access to Um, more um, information um, and knowledge about these people um, and the work that they're doing, but it also comes with this accountability. Um, So I need to do right by um, these people, their stories um, and their work, um, and also that I'm showing up, um, that I am giving back in the ways that I can. And so there are times when I feel like I'm failing um at that. And so it's um being in relationship with people is really um important because people can uh pull me back in when I, I need to. And um it it's been a really, really great experience. Um and I'm 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 very um grateful for it.
0: All right. I'm really glad that I asked because it it gets to the contrast between these two projects, but also just how in a longer term project, you know, the people who you're engaged with, you know, they, they are an important audience to be accountable to. And then because you're in relationship with them, you can have an ongoing dialogue about how that relationship works and, you know, are they getting, you know, what they need uh, out of your like engagement and participation with with what you're doing.
1: I think the iterative approach is is the ideal um, to be able to go back and um, say like we thought we were doing this. What do you think here? Feedback, and so that is the model that I'm trying to employ here. But uh, yeah, as as we discussed, that that iterative approach was not possible with um, the book, and that was both a, a protection, but also um, a, a major limitation.
0: Well, back to the book, I read it as a critical sociology of drug use that refuses taken-for-granted notions about the meaning of terms like abuse and addiction or addict. So, for example, in Chapter 3, you discuss the line between use and abuse. So how does the line between use and abuse get, get drawn, and who gets to make that distinction?
1: Absolutely. So um, again, as you teach, as your audience is aware, we talk about medicalization and the power of medical authorities in contemporary society. And we often um, talk about the shift from religious authorities to medical scientific authorities. Um, And with that shift, um, science gets constructed as truth, um, this objective um, truth. And so we see this boundary between use and abuse, which is um increasingly policed by medical scientific um, authorities as this objective reality um that's distinctive from the previous religious iteration or moral um relig- um or uh criminal um uh, iterations um but, in practice, we see that's anything but the truth, um, that it is this muddy um, boundary that is really in the eye of the beholder, um, and the beholder being um, the person who is enacting the law or um, or medicine. And um, we know the criminal legal system has always been a mechanism for enforcement and punishment, justifying punishment of certain individuals or groups of people. Um, and that's especially been true in the last 20th century in the United States, but well before that. Um, And so uh, it allows increasingly doctors and scientists to sort of police this boundary um, between what is legitimate use and illegitimate abuse um, and how medical authorities become a part of this um, criminal legal system. So The DSM um, has shifted its terminology over time from addiction to um, substance abuse to now substance dependence. Um, But in measuring who is, quote unquote, suffering from substance dependence, it involves a number of factors that um, are specifically, have you been arrested um, for um, substance use um, or um, have you been punished in some way by um, society? And so It's sort of justifying, well, you're suffering from this um, disease if you somehow have been punished um, for this um, by your employer um, or your school or a police officer's. And again, this is very muddy because, um, we know, um, that policing is unequal. The, the very title of the book, the prescription to prison pipeline is a riff on the school to prison pipeline and preschool to prison pipeline and, um, which kids are more likely to be expelled and suspended, um, in early education and how that, um, increases the likelihood of later incarceration. And so it's sort of justifying discrimination in the system. Um, So people who've experienced this, it's not constructed as discrimination, but people who have experienced uh, um, punishment at school or by police officers for substance use means that you are suffering from this um, medical condition. Um, And um, so, yeah, this 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 boundary between use and abuse, um, it it has similarly to the the therapeutic turn in prisons. It, it sounds good in theory, but really it's just new new language um, that's used to justify the same sort of discrimination that has been rife in this system for a long time.
0: I mean, the fact that the DSM has in it. Have you been caught by the police for doing this thing? Uh, completely ignoring the inequities we know that exist in in policing and where police look for crimes you know we could we could put crime, crimes in scare quotes in some cases is astounding when we think about like a medical science or when we think about like a, a professional practice that is supposed to be you know somewhat distinguished from other other aspects of like the social control system including policing
1: yeah and i mean i think that's why there's um the m- medicine as social control um that there's a lot of functionalism in the the medical system of uh, a lot of these definitions of disorders in the DSM are um are you challenging the system do you is, is there um are you are things not cool in the carpool <laughs> um if they're if you're challenging things and you're being punished for out speaking out about things, then it's now a medical diagnosis. And we see how people have been historically criminalized for challenging the status quo, for challenging inequities and injustice and oppression. But now how the medical uh, and healthcare system, which again is this, these institutions that are sort of people go into them with good intentions. Um, I want to help people, and there are a lot of well-intentioned people. Um who are involved in these institutions, but it's sort of drawing attention to this can really reify and justify the in- inequities and inequalities embedded in the status quo, because um, a lot of these diagnoses are, well, you're doing something that is, is challenging, or you're being punished for, um, and therefore sort of legitimizing the the, the penal systems that are upholding the status quo.
0: I want to, follow up, I think on this, um, and many people have noticed that, you know, there's a difference between how the so-called war on drugs was prosecuted, um, certainly in the 1980s and and continuing, um, through, uh, you know, the, the crime bill of, I think it was 1996 and, and, um, and so on, um and what's happened more recently with the what's called the opioid crisis. So what distinguishes the consequences of this opioid crisis from the longstanding war on drugs? You know, now we have drug courts, diversion programs, and mandatory rehabilitation. Um, is this mostly an effect of who is using drugs non-medically, or is it something else?
1: Absolutely. No, it's a great question, and there is this connection and this... Um, disjuncture from war on the war on drugs, and as you've identified, we we sort of um, see the height of the war on drugs in the 1980s. Um, but it was ushered in by the Nixon administration um, as a means of justifying police and incarceration of certain po- populations, notably black men. Um, but we see how this is this plays into a longer history in the United States, um, uh, that the the so-called opium crisis, um, similar to the opioid crisis, um, was a means of policing and expelling Chinese um, imports and people. Um, and so we saw the same um, thing that happened with marijuana and cocaine. And um, so often these drugs are tied to different racialized and class um, class populations. Um, and so. The opioid crisis is um, is often treated as distinctive because um, a lot of people who are using opioids are white, um, but um, we also see how people who are punished for um, uh, uh, substance use are still come from um, lower uh, lower middle class um, and poor communities. Um, And so there's still the stratification. um, And um, we also see increasingly how people of color are um, using opioids and being policed for that. Um, And part of the reason that I avoid using the term the opioid crisis or the opioid epidemic um, in the book and in general is First of all, I am talking about um, all sorts of prescription drugs. So um, opioids, which receives the most attention, but all sorts of um, uh, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, um, psychotropics, um, sort of as this broader class um, speaking to medicalization. Um, but as we talked about um, early on in the podcast, um, it also um, this language of the war on drugs or the opioid epidemic um, misdirects our focus. Um, it Implies that um, we that the the problem is with the drug, so that opioids are exclusively harmful, which we know are not true. That's the reason we we talked about we are increasingly experiencing chronic pain. Um, opium has been used for millennia um, to quell um, pain and to address um, all sorts of issues, respiratory issues, diarrhea. Um, that it is this medicine that has a lot of resources and also pain. Um, but also that it's implying that it's something new, um, and it's something that's um, uh, produced by opioids itself, as opposed to produced by larger inequities in our society, um, unequal access to, Jobs, food, education. I can say it all day long. Um, um, but yeah, so I think it's 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 misdirecting our focus about um, well, the problem is with the drug, we need to police it more or stop prescribing it, which I am not an advocate for. Um, I, as I said, there are a lot of people who need um. Um, all sorts of prescription drugs I it would be again speaking more broadly about um these are important medical technologies that have important uses um but that how are they overused or misused um, in situations where we need to address these Upstream causes um, and so that the crisis is really a crisis of inequality and um um oppression
0: yeah it strikes me that you know the making the problem, the drug itself, you know, leads to a solution that doubles down on existing institutions of control, surveillance, incarceration. I mean, that expands uh, not only government uh, employment in terms of, you know, corrections officers and law enforcement officers and probation officers and parole officials and those sorts of things, but also feeds, um, other industries and even private corporations that have been soundly soundly critiqued. Right. So, um, you know, private prison companies and things like that, where, you know, redirecting maybe some of our resources, you know, upstream might help um Help us both get people the pain relief that they need, but also not feed into this like very robust surveillance and policing system that we have in the United States. I mean, we talk about our prison population, but I I do wonder what our like sort of corrections and control population is uh, compared to some of our, you know, comparable countries such as such as there are.
1: No, absolutely. And I think, like, just, uh, I I like that you include that piece of how many people are employed um, by prisons, even irrespective of the the incarcerated people themselves, and that, like, people will be fighting for their jobs because, well, I I need a job, and that's the job in town. But again, speaks to what are all of the other social services and needs and things that are not provided and the jobs that could be available there if there was a redirection of our funds um, to those addressing those issues as opposed to punishing, um, uh, people. So yeah, no, I think that is a really important, um, point.
0: Well, Michelle, it's great fun talking with you about your, your book. And, uh, the, the title is of course, super evocative, as you said, of the school to prison pipeline, but, um, you know, these issues I think are of interest to a lot of our, our listeners. So, so thanks very much again for, for writing it and for, sharing your expertise with us.
1: Oh, thank you. I, I mentioned before we got on the air, but I really, really appreciated such thoughtful questions and thoughtful reading. Um, and, um, I know it takes a lot of work, so I really appreciate it. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's got given me a lot to think through. Um, I know a lot of people when they write a book, it, it takes on many lives and it's, um, reprocessing. It really helps me draw new connections and, um, Things that I carry forward um, in the work that I hope to do better going forward. So I really appreciate um, you creating this space and giving the opportunity to have this conversation.
0: Well, it's definitely my my pleasure. Now let's talk about something else that you are, and uh, at least uh, familiar with, if not expert in, and that's Kansas City barbecue. So uh, I'm developing in the banter segment a, a what seems like an ongoing feature about food and. Uh, uh, cities and their associated food so um i currently live in a city that doesn't have like a signature food dish i grew up you as i think i mentioned to you uh before we were on um on recording uh in springfield missouri which is uh home of uh, springfield missouri style cashew chicken which if you haven't uh listeners if you haven't had it it's a uh, fried chicken with brown gravy and um, rice uh and green uh and green onions anyway um highly recommended for those who like american chinese food um so do you have any thoughts on kansas city barbecue joints for those who are not familiar kansas city is famous for its barbecue i think this has something to do with railway lines and cattle production in the midwest and and western Mm -hmm. united states but we don't let's not talk about the history let's talk about the barbecue itself michelle you got thoughts on kc barbecue
1: you know, it's funny. I I mentioned this earlier that I I tend to eat not a super animal heavy diet in general, but I do eat meat um, on occasion. But I have visitors. I'm not from Kansas City um originally, and so people always visit and they say, we gotta go get barbecue. Where do we go? So I feel like I've been forced to become an expert and have an opinion. And um Joe's KC, which is uh uh the original location, is out of a gas station, I think is hands down. Well, cool. I I will actually put a caveat. I think it is like the most, um, is the best, most popular of um, the, the Kansas City barbecue places. There's a place called Slap's that I'm not allowed to say because it's in KCK. Um, so as pe- listeners may know, there's Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas, and that's a huge war, um, which was also challenging for me to understand why people wouldn't root for um, the KU basketball team and the Missouri football team, because I was like, root for the teams that are good. But yes, um, you're cringing at even um, that suggestion. So these state dividing lines are very strong here. Um, it goes
0: back a minute, Michelle. Yes. Missouri was on the wrong side um but anyway we'll talk about that later
1: yes yeah so there's people people argue what um they're allowed but i think what the one thing i can say definitively i think burnt ends are the best um uh barbecue uh that is sort of a distinctive kansas city um type of barbecue and it's the scraps um uh uh, pork scraps, I think I'm really bad at what is, um, but it's it's burned. Um,
0: I think it's brisket.
1: Oh, brisket is it brisket? Is it? The, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We don't know. Clearly, we're. Um, I'm just. But I need
0: to go to Kansas City. Is what I've learned from this conversation.
1: <laughs> yes, but it, it it makes me as um, I think of the Jewish tradition of lox from salmon about, and I think of also lobster. How the fishermen um, there's this history of um the, the 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 scraps of food that are treated as that's not the high quality meat of salmon or that's um a bottom feeder um, uh, fish like lobster. This is the scraps of barbecue that actually is the best. Um, it's um crispy and crunchy and um deliciousness. So, um where I land is get the burn ends
0: all right. We've confirmed it's brisket, by the way. Just, we've consulted our barbecue experts uh, who are just off camera and, um, <laughs> and it's, and it's, it's brisket. So uh, please barbecue aficionados. Uh, don't at me uh, on this, but burnt ends. Yeah. Uh, we actually had um, JT Thomas on, um, mm. I just interviewed him recently and of course he's from okay. Kansas city and, yeah. and it strikes me that I, I may should have asked him this question. I know he has opinions on, Kansas city barbecue Probably really has all
1: better opinions page. than I do. I will just say it there. I apologize for anyone. <laughs> well, that's opinion.
0: all right. That's all right. You know, everyone's entitled to their, to their,
1: uh, to their opinions.
0: opinion. Yeah. Their opinion for sure. Um, well, uh, Michelle, thank you for sharing your barbecue expertise with us. Uh, Google tells me that Joe's actually shipped burnt ends. So, uh, those who, this is by the way, uh, Joe's, if you're, if you're looking to sponsor a podcast, uh, my, uh, my DMs are open. Um, just kidding. We're a nonprofit, uh, nonprofit <laughs> podcast. Anyway, Michelle, it's so good to talk with you. Thanks for sharing about your expertise, both on barbecue and on the uh, on the prescription to prison pipeline.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on here and hearing my flawed views um, on all topics. <laughs> uh, awesome. I appreciate it very much and enjoyed this conversation. So thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology Podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Thanks so much to our guest, Michelle Smernova from the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Thanks also to our producer and uh, to Joe Cohn, who directs the Queens Podcast Lab, music by Lena Orsa.